I think people often focus on the wrong things. That resume joke I made earlier is a joke because that's the number one thing I see a lot of people helping new junior potential getting into games people optimizing resumes. And it's just not the right thing to focus on. So we're gonna go into that. Welcome to Building Better Games. Today, we're gonna to take a step back and give our opinions on getting into the games industry. It's one of the most common questions we hear. We wanna cover a few key areas. What you can do to demonstrate you're worth hiring without being in the industry. Why being passionate is not enough. And how long it might take you to break into games. I can't promise it will all be good news, but we're hoping you leave with some concrete next steps on your journey towards building better games. Make your resume perfect. That's it. Yep. That's the key. Spend 500 hours making your resume perfect. There you go. You can thank me later. End of podcast. So we want to start this off with like real talk. There's a, a myth of the dream job. There's this idea that like, oh, if I could just get into games, if I get into the games industry, that would be so cool. I get to like, I just get to live and breathe games all the time. People tend to see the glamorized version of it from the outside. Yeah, I feel like there's like this draw there because yeah. so many of us, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you probably love games. Yeah, and I think that there's many people out there who, like us, games had a formative impact on their life or their development as a human being, which is great. And then, you know, when you're not in the industry, I think it's a natural psychological jump to be like, well, maybe I should do this for a living. Right. And there's a broad spectrum of awareness when it comes to what game development actually entails. And on one extreme is like the crap my parents used to say to me when I first got into the industry, which was like, oh, so you just play games all day. For anyone who's in development, this is like a meme-worthy thing you hear from people who just have no idea what we do every day. And you know that that's obviously on the extreme side. The other extreme side would be somebody who's been in it for 15, 20 years or whatever, and like knows the ins and outs of the, the, how the sausage is made, if you will. But it's worth noting that there is an awareness function as you get closer and closer to what it actually looks like. And I think that's one of the things we want to talk about uh, right now is, so like, what does it actually look like? Because I really do think that most people have no idea how the sausage is made. <laughs> yeah. In the games industry specifically, you hear these stories behind many of the games that we love of insane crunch, unbelievable extra hours, burnout, you know, getting into arguments and fights with each other because we're all so tired and exhausted and just trying to hit deadlines. And those are some of the games that were successful. Often those stories are even worse in games that you never even heard about because they didn't work out. But there's there was a brutal reality for a very long time. And I think perhaps some good news is I, I believe that some of that is starting to change a bit around the industry where it is less, less crunch focused, less kind of beat up your developers because I can always get more. Certain organizations are starting to recognize, oh, that's not the best way to be. But I'll be honest, that's still very present in our industry. If you're an outsider and you're looking at this industry, 
I would say that in many respects, this is an industry that is still adolescent in its understanding of the value of talent and how it treats talent overall. So if you're expecting to be uh, really well taken care of as an employee, there are companies that more and more companies every day that are doing that, that understand the, the value of that. But there's a lot of problems in, in our space when it comes to that. And, and a lot of them have made their way into mainstream media. But uh, for every one of those stories that makes it out, there are probably five more that never made it out. And for every story that you read that sounds really awful, there's probably a bunch that are just less awful enough to fly under the radar. I think what I want to call out is often the culture shock and the reality check that a lot of people from outside come in where they just think it's some grandma's boy thing where we're all just like, you know, drinking our coffees and eating our smoothies and high-fiving each other and having fun all day, just playing Nerf guns in the pit and stuff like this. And like the reality is it's it can often be hard. It can often be taxing. There is sometimes bad decisions that get made that, you know, hurt people. And it's not in many respects, the games industry suffers from the same kinds of corporate BS that a lot of other industries do. And so it's just like, just there's a reality check. There's just something to be aware of and something to yes. consider. It's, it's not all fun and games. Ha ha. Yeah. When I like to call out too, that, you know, looking at it comparatively, mm. it may be just another standard industry. But if you were expecting the dream job, yeah. then your expectation is going to be disrupted. If you're thinking that working in video games is some amazing dream job, it may be, but it might not be. And I, I want to talk about one reason why. And there's a really simple sort of economic reality of the games industry, which is supply and demand. The availability of talent is very high. Yes. Supply is everywhere. There are so many people who want to be in, in the games industry that would take pay cuts, have taken yeah. pay cuts, know they're getting paid less than they could if they took their exact same skill set somewhere else because they want to make games. And by the way, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that from any angle. Like when you look at that, you know, that, those are the trade-offs of being in different industries. Yeah. And I, I want to call out that that is a phenomenon that is, from my experience, unique, relatively unique to games which is like you often hear stories about like this person went to Harvard and got an MBA. And, you know, when they were confronted with the reality that they were about to become a McKinsey consultant for the rest of their life, they were like, screw that. I actually want to do something I'm proud of, something that, you know, inspires me. And so they went into games or somebody who was a lawyer pulling in a half a million dollar salary or whatever and decides to just say, screw it, I'm burning out on this. I don't enjoy my work. Like you hear these kinds of stories all the time. And so like it is it is often the case that I think when people decide that they want to be more inspired by their work, it is a natural thing for them to go, well, I want to go make video games. And so there's this constant inflow of people, to your point, Ben, even from like very high paying, highly educated high yes. like demand careers coming into to games. And think about that as you're listening to this. I hope it doesn't discourage you too much, but that's your competition. Those are the people that you're competing against to get into the, the even entry-level jobs. And Aaron's not kidding. I know someone who was a successful lawyer who then went into like the most entry-level of the entry-level positions in games. And was happy to have made the switch and made way less money, maybe worked just as hard, but they were happy to be working in games. Just be aware of the supply demand. There is 
a lot less demand than there is supply, broadly speaking, uh, in the industry. That doesn't just affect the getting the job part, which we're going to talk a lot about in this podcast. It also continues to affect you long after you've walked in the door. I would label this career as a very demanding career from a performance perspective. I mean, I know people who are in corporate jobs who like, you know, you just put in your five or six years and eventually you get your corner office and you just almost become invisible. And as long as, you know, you fill out your TPS reports properly, you get your paycheck and then you go home and the system is just a well-oiled machine and just no one really cares that much about the details. That in most of the time in games, that is not the case. Even at the companies that are more on the corporate side, they tend to put high demands on their individual contributors, like sometimes to the point where it's so unreasonable, it's insane. I just want to be clear here. Ben and I are not trying to discourage you. Um, we're just, we think that a nice, healthy dose of reality could be a great kickstart for this conversation because most of the rest of the stuff we're going to talk about is giving you all of the life hacks and all of the career hacks that you need to actually pull this off. I think the last thing I would say in the sort of real talk space I've referenced before most games fail. Most of the projects that people work on that they are passionate about, that they work really hard towards, fail. And by the way, you could always find ways to take responsibility for that. We're in a difficult space. I think in the same way that we see most books fail, most movies fail, most music fails in any sort of commercial, commercially viable sense, games are the same thing. This is entertainment. What people will end up playing, they'll tend to cluster around the most popular products. And there's a distinction in all of those mediums between what you might consider artistically the best and what ends up becoming popular. Sometimes we can predict that, sometimes we can't, doesn't matter. If you're in games, you have like a 95% fail rate, okay? Understand that going into it. And you know some companies do better than others and are actually well known because they manage to do better than, than that average. Mm -hmm. That's the world of game dev. You know, if you're going in, you know, you join a startup or you join a mid-sized company and you're trying to make a game, odds are it's not going to work out. That has to be something that you become comfortable with while also being able to peel the lessons away from that so you increase the odds the next time. So yeah, so again, recap, be aware of the myth of the dream job and watch out for that in your expectations. Be aware of the supply and demand of the industry, that there's a lot of people that want to get into the industry and not enough roles for those people. And three, be aware that most games fail. And, and that's just, that is also just an expectation setting thing. Like that's part and parcel of entering into the industry. So now, now that we've covered some misconceptions we see about the industry, we want to talk a little bit about what it actually looks like. I was thinking about like how I would describe the games industry, the actual work we do at a high level. And one of the things that came up for me is the games is highly creative and games is also highly technical. Yes. I think it is relatively unique in the sense that it is the confluence of those two things. And, and it's not to say that I don't mean creative in the sense of like knowledge work. It's creative in that there is an artistic, a distinctly artistic element to it. Mm -hmm. Like we are telling stories mm -hmm. actively through games and we're creating worlds and we're, we're doing these things while also building software. Yeah, Software is the primary tool of expression for all these things. So it's the confluence between a creative work, 
art, basically, and technology. And from that perspective, it differs even from enterprise, I think, which, uh, you know, your, your FANG companies, like your Facebooks and, you know, and Netflix and, the, and these sorts of things. And, um, and it's not to say, again, that those companies don't have creative elements in them, but they're, I think they're mostly innovating on technology. The reason that that's important is because no matter what your role is in game development, you will not be able to avoid interacting with technology and the technical aspects of that in some way or another, or the creative side, the storytelling side, whatever that means. I'm specifically referring to game production. Yeah. And so there's a couple things that that implies heavily uh, that, and some of these were the shockers for me. Like I had no exposure to software or software development before I joined Riot. And lucky for me, I was fascinated by software development. I loved software development. I love exploring, discussing, and mapping out architecture. I love finding complex solutions to complex problems. If you really love technology and you really love software development, there's a good chance that a lot of the work is going to resonate with you. Yeah. One thing I want to call out, similar to the points we're discussing, is like, because I often hear this, when people hear that I'm a game developer, one of the most common questions I get is like, well, so are you like a programmer? There's an assumption there that the vast majority of game developers are actively programming. And uh, that is just simply not the case. The reality nowadays is that most game studios are highly cross-functional, where you have many people that are very specialized within a certain skill set. Like I said, even if you're an artist, you're engaging with technology and you're building those art assets in a digital medium. So like you're not completely disconnected from technology. The majority of people at an average game studio are not programmers and don't actively program. Um, and so it's just something to keep in mind that, yes, technology is a foundational aspect. It is the expression of the game. It is the platform that delivers the game. But it is there are highly specialized and talented engineers that are building that technology. And part of the reason they're building the technology is so that they can provide tooling and methods for the rest of the talented people that do other things to express their, yeah. through their medium. It's interesting you say that I always get to like, oh, do you like design the games? And that's another one, I think, yeah, where people is. assume like the industry is just rampant with designers. Yeah. And actually... So 80% of the people at a studio are designers, right? Yeah, like, exactly. It's like 50%, yes, 50% engineers, 50% designers. And and they're just working together to like design and build everything. And it's no, no, it's it's incorrect pretty severely. There's probably more engineers than designers, depending on your studio, but designers are actually relatively rare. Yeah, there are artists, there are producers, there's QA. We ran a retro for a game company recently where we helped them like walk through, hey, how did a project go and things like that. And we didn't know all their disciplines. So I wrote down, I think I had like 17 or yeah. disciplines written down. I was trying to sort of capture most of the buckets and I still didn't get them all. There's a lot of different roles you can play inside of the games industry and a successful game is all of those individual elements coming together sufficiently well, right? Yeah. Everything doesn't have to be world-class, but enough of it has to come together well enough that the, you, you create actually the cohesive experience. I would say that 
there's a lot more collaboration than you might think. Yes. Especially in the successful companies, a high degree of collaboration around what it is we're building and how would we best solve problems and all these sorts of things. I love that you brought that up because the other, the two things that popped up in my head were the one you just mentioned, collaboration, and the other one was complex problem solving. Yeah. In good game development, you are going to be exposed to those and having to operate within both of those things every single day. Yes. Every single day you will be solving complex problems and you will be collaborating with a lot of other people because these are very complex, creative and technological systems that require input from many, many different people of many different backgrounds. And it all has to come together correctly. And so by nature, we have to like interface extremely high touch with other human beings. Yes. And again, the problems we have to solve, there is very rarely a deterministic set of solutions to them. If you're somebody who enjoys that kind of environment where there's a lot of uncertainty, that's just every day in game development. Yes. Like, and, and in fact, what Ben and I often observe and what we often lecture people in our industry about is if it's too deterministic, it's probably not going to turn out well. I think the other thing I'll say about that is part of the nature of that collaboration and that complex problem solving, especially when you first join a company, you know, if you're in an entry-level role or you're sort of a line leader on something, you have people who care a lot about the work you're developing and have a ton of opinions about what it should or shouldn't be and what it's trying to solve. There's a million people who have a million questions and a million concerns about every decision that's made. And if you think this is an industry without overhead, you are wrong. I don't want you to think of that as all negative. We're trying to solve complex problems. We need to collaborate to do that. There is some amount of time that you're going to be spending not doing work. If you're an engineer or an artist or a QA or something like that, you're going to be talking to people about what actually matters, what's important, why a solution does or doesn't work so that we can do better next time. It's an important part of making a successful game. So there's the real talk. You're still in. You still want this. You're like, okay, I hear you. I hear what it's like. I like that. There's something I, I, I like to say, which is like passion is insufficient. Being really passionate about games and being really passionate about even making games is not enough to land you a job in the industry. And that's because of that supply-demand problem. There's a ton of passionate people in our industry. In fact, mm -hmm. I would say the vast majority of the people I worked with were passionate. That's just like a table stake. Especially if you're trying to break into the industry, you have to go beyond that. And we want to talk to you about some ways to do that. Ben and I are going to be giving you probably drastically different advice than a lot of other folks would give you. And we're okay with that. Uh, just keep in mind that, you know, if you want a, a more ubiquitous kind of view, then don't just look at us. Go go check other advice out. I think people often focus on the wrong things. Like that, that resume joke I made earlier is a joke because that's the number one thing I see a lot of people with very good intentions helping you know, new junior potential getting into games, people just tweaking and optimizing resumes. It's just not the right thing to focus on first. So we're yeah. going to go into that. And I'm going to start this off by saying that the creative economy is king. Now, like if you can demonstrate an ability to create something that is valuable to someone else, that is the ultimate conversation starter for the conversation to go in your favor. Like we live in a world where some random guy or gal can start making YouTube videos 
And if they get enough hits, they get credibility from that, regardless of whatever the thing that they were talking about was, like regardless of whether they had previous experience whatsoever. So this is something you can use to your advantage. Understand that that is your ultimate weapon in your battle to get into this industry. And so this is why Ben and I recommend a lot of things. One of them is the creator economy in games has never been bigger than it is right now. You have actual companies profiting on this. Roblox is a huge example, my goodness. Exactly, and and then that's not to speak of the modding community, which is gigantic and bigger than it ever has been, and is producing more AAA games than ever. And in fact, an old colleague of ours just posted on Twitter the other day and said that basically every successful online game was directly attributed to a mod. Let that sink in for a second. League of Legends, PUBG, Counter-Strike, the biggest online games, the most successful online games in the world had their origins in mod teams, people doing this for free. Creators out of passion, learning the skills and tools they needed to learn to do this for free. You can do this too. You like Skyrim? There are 2,000 mods for Skyrim that have teams working on them right now that probably all need help. Go join their team. Like, oh, you're not a programmer? I don't care. They probably would love to have a project manager help them manage their work and help keep right. them focused and help them build out a project roadmap or whatever it is. Cool. You don't know how to do that? Well, guess what? They have nothing. So <laughs> you can go learn. You can learn on the job. So yeah. and then again, you're not going to get paid. You probably won't we'll have to keep your day job while doing it. But this is this is the way we want to transition. You're thinking away from things like resumes and educational accolades and awards and certificates and things like this. Go out and do the thing. You are in a world today where the luxury you have the luxury of a thousand opportunities to do that at the tips of your fingers because of the way, again, the creator economy works and the internet works and everything. So we just want to encourage you to do that. If you're like, I have no idea how I'll ever be imminently hireable in this industry, find something that you are excited about that you can create that is valuable to people in the game space and you will eventually get a job. And I guarantee that when push comes to shove, that thing on your resume will be the thing that draws the most attention. Not where you went to school, not how many years you did blah, not which certificate, agile certificate you got. It's going to be, hey, I worked on this mod team and this mod had 150,000 downloads. Right. Whether you're doing it alone, whether you're doing it in teams, mm -hmm. it's a great way to get, it's not a perfect picture of game dev, but it's you contributing to a game live. And depending on the complexity of the mod, you know, if you're completely overhauling a game, it may have a lot of the elements of game dev. If you're just Maybe you're more on the art side and you're actually just creating some assets and putting them out there into the world. You're being forced to confront the fact that what you thought was cool may not be cool for everybody every day when you're making mods. And that's a really awesome thing that game developers confront every day. The thing that you thought was going to work, the thing that you thought was going to be amazing, actually turned out not to land with people. They didn't download it you have to figure out in the modding community is how do I actually get my idea out there? There's a publishing aspect, a marketing aspect. Like I want people to download my game. Modding can get you exposure to all of that. Now, we're also talking about a particular type of modding here. Some people just are like, hey, I wanna make a thing and I wanna put it in Skyrim and I'll throw it up on nexusmods.com because, because I built it and maybe someone else wants it. That's fine. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're talking about mods that are actually really shooting to be 
received very well by a lot of people and get some amount of success. I'm not saying you have to be one of the top 10 Skyrim mods. I am saying if you're just building it for yourself, then you're not actually doing all you could do to really drive up your resume. Yeah. It's not just the connection between value that other people can consume or players can consume. It's every bit of experience you get from going through that loop. Because as Ben just mentioned, the trials, tribulations, learnings, failures, successes, all this stuff that happens as you try to deliver something that you want other people to value or that you hope that they value or that they do already value and you're improving or whatever it is, will give you the most direct exposure to the reality of what game development is like and the kind of decisions you have to make. And so it's actually important that people use the thing, even if they don't today, If you're, that your goal is to get them to, right? That needs to be the primary objective is that I'm going to make a thing that I want other people to enjoy because that's fundamentally what we do every day. Yes. And I want to also talk uh, one caveat to modding. There are interesting things in modding that don't reflect real game development. So don't think that because you've maybe you've created a few successful mods, like really successful mods in Skyrim or for like a Total War game or something like that. Don't think that means that you're going to be hired as like a senior game designer somewhere like or you're still entry level because there are distinctions. I remember uh, there was one Skyrim mod. Basically, the the person was a, a character artist and they'd leveled up a lot of the basic textures all over the game. And they were talking about in the mod why, like, I couldn't, I can't believe this is only like a 4K texture or something like that. Like, I made it a 64K texture. Look at all the detail. And, you know, if you're someone who's playing on a really nice rig, you love that. Skyrim looks more beautiful. It's nice. You're like, yeah, I'm so glad you added all this detail in. You have to recognize Skyrim as a game launched in 2012 and had to fit on Xbox. Some of the constraints that exist in actual game development when you're trying to do a cross-platform game or you're trying to think about min-spec and things like that, you're going to not have some of those if you're doing mods because, hey, look, if, if you know, 70% of the people that own this game can't use my mod, that may be fine with me yeah. because I'm going for this super high-end experience that only someone who's got like an, an RTX... 3070 or above could even you know hope to interact with and and you can get away with that when you're modding you can't get away with that when you're making games yeah so again it's a great place to start great exposure remember that there's a lot that is different when i saw a resume and someone had said these were the cool mods i'd made and like here's sort of their scaled impact on lots of people i always viewed that very positively that made me more interested because i'm like oh you you loved games enough to spend a lot of time building something other players want. Now, a step below that is just going and figuring out game engines, going and puzzling your way through some Unreal, some Unity, figuring out how it works. Maybe, again, maybe that's an, an, a way to get onto a team that's trying to build something cool. But play around with a tool. Start getting understanding for what they are. Build some things that you can show, and you can talk about some of the challenges of working in those tools. I'm going to come back to this. The key thing that you're trying to do, remembering that passion is not enough, is develop a skill set that companies actually care about bringing into their company. You want a game dev studio to look at you and what you've done. You want them to go, I want this person in my company. Passion isn't enough because everybody's got that. There's so much of that going around. My path into the games industry was very odd. I was very blessed to go get in the way I did. It was... I had spent time in the military as an officer, and I had a lot of leadership expertise. 
And I joined a small growing company that needed leaders. They were really wanted leaders at that time. And so it worked out for me that when I left the military and started looking, I had demonstrated leadership and I had lots of training in leadership. I'd led things that were important. They were excited to bring me on board because I could lead teams and do things, figure out what that skill set is. There's a really important second hop to this thing you're talking about right now, where it's it's about developing a skill and then demonstrating that skill in terms of an outcome. Like you can be on a mod team for a mod that no one's ever played and make really good art for that. I don't know if that's going to be enough. Like the thing that's really going to wow people is if you got someone to play your mod and even if you just contributed one piece to that, I think that you being able to connect that to a, a product outcome is integral. Yes. It's like no one asked me what my role on my podcast was when I got my job at Riot, but I know the fact that I was running a gaming podcast was a part of why I got my job there. I mean, I was an intern candidate. Why did I stick out? Because I was, I was a po- uh, running a podcast. It was a completed product that you could go check out, consume, enjoy. You know, when you said this, one of the things I'm realizing is that if I were to give someone advice broadly, and I wasn't even thinking about this when we started this podcast, don't think about, here's all the skills I have. Here's all the certifications I have. Here's all the training I've been through. Here's all the previous companies I've worked at. Yes. That's not irrelevant. But if you actually think about that in terms of here are all the outcomes I've generated over the course of the last 10 years or four years or six months, right? I don't care. If you just came out of college, what have your outcomes been so far? And how are you going to be adding outcomes to that list? Yeah. Because the best companies care a lot about those outcomes, less about your certification in Scrum or something. And by the way, that could provide you an entry point that you may not have expected as well. So start thinking about which skills you've already exercised that have created outcomes. Like for example, I've run into a couple people in the last year or two who have built 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 member community discords for a certain topic that they're passionate about. If I am hiring for a games company and I know that you can actively manage a community that's relatively well-known that has 30,000 people in it, you bet your sweet butt I will hire you onto my community team. Right. And you already know how to do that. And so I'd be excited to bring that expertise and that capability to generate positive outcomes into my organization. Yes. Right? So it's so important to make a thing and show a thing it's like, I, I really, it is like show, don't tell is such a classic, you know, piece of wisdom. So I want to actually move from that, especially the community, the community management example and tie that into, Hey, look, like there are roles in the games industry that are considered non-expert roles, regardless of how much I may disagree with that. There are roles like entry-level QA and things like that, production coordinator that really don't have tons of, uh, requirements to get in. I have such a high view of QA that I I actually think that's crazy, but hey, it's out there and it's a way in. And so if you're looking for a job, put on humility as you do that. This is a hard industry to get into. There is a supply and demand problem. Once you're in it, Aaron and I have both seen countless people change 
jobs, change roles, change titles and disciplines and things once they're in the industry. Once you're in the company and you start demonstrating that you're a great employee and that you add a lot of value, then when you when you say something like, hey, I know I've been doing community management for a while, I've been doing QA for a while, I'd like to try engineering, they will actually often help you. Because if you're a great employee, then they want you to stay, they want to keep you. And there will be ways and that'll be a journey in and of itself. But one of the hardest things of the games industry is just getting through the door. Once you're through the door, it opens up a lot of options for you. So that's another path in. And this, those roles do get the strictest, like the, the worst version of the supply demand problem. If you don't have the valuable skill set, if you don't have those outcomes, maybe you're brand new and you don't have that sort of background, cool, then be willing to accept those non-expert roles. Even if you think you're an expert in something, a college degree doesn't actually make you an expert in something. It just means you've had a lot of training, you've been taught a lot of things. Yeah. No one knows actually if that's worth anything in the real world yet. And so be willing to go into whatever role you can find. You know, Aaron joined as an unpaid intern, brought the coffee and got the sandwiches and like made sure the order was right at Subway or whatever, right? Like that was a real part. And he leveraged that through being successful and through demonstrating excellence in those things into a an, a really effective career in game production. I'm going to give a hard time to the game-related college degrees right now because a lot of people are going through those you know, they get like, ah, I got a bachelor's in game design or a bachelor's in game production or game art or something like that. Look, I'm not saying that's not useful. And I'm not saying you weren't taught by people who had a lot of great experience. I am saying the supply demand still applies to you. Do not think that because you got a game dev degree of some kind, that that means you're some shoe into these companies. You're not. You're still just out of college, unproven. One of the things that you may have more of than a lot of people is those outcomes, right? If you actually did a lot of successful game jams and things like that, you can point to, hey, these are the great outcomes I had, but recognize you're still going to be probably like going in entry level, kind of proving yourself as a as a game dev or game leader or whatever it might be. If you're stuck on, I won't join any job except game dev, and you're just out of college, you're making a mistake, in my opinion. Be careful about putting the rest of your life on hold. Go into other roles that will get you experience, whether that's in tech, in film, in whatever it might be. Try to find a role that does have applicable skills that you can talk so you can talk about those outcomes. Don't put the rest of life on hold until you get your game dev job because it might take a few years and you don't want to be not gaining experience while everybody around you is. Yeah, one thing I want to call out is going to places where people talk about games and going to places where game developers go and adding value. Don't bug someone and ask them for a job recommendation add value and they will come to you. If you're in a yes. game community for a long enough time and you're putting forward interesting ideas, you're adding, you're giving, you're making other people feel good about you being around, that they're feel, they feel you're an addition. You're not a leech. You're an addition. Walk in and ask yourself, what can I give? What can I contribute to make this space better? I promise you, if you do that enough times, someone will notice you, someone will DM you, something will happen, and they will ask you more about yourself. Or at the very least, there will be an opening at some point for you to make that request once that trust has already been established. Put out reviews, like do journalism, make a podcast about game reviews. If those things take off, it's credibility. All of those things are hard, okay? It's not easy. None of this is easy. But you're trying to do something that's hard. You're trying to get into games. So 
that's okay. That's just step one. That's getting you in the door. Another interesting one was actually expertise in playing. We saw this a lot uh, at Riot with people who became very good at League of Legends. We viewed them very highly. Now, they still had to pass an interview. If they couldn't explain why they were good at the game and they didn't understand the systems and they just complained about a particular champion all day during the interview, like that probably didn't bode well for them. But if they were able to talk about the thoughtful decisions that Riot was making or the ones that they disagreed with and why and how they might have done it differently, or like here's how they might fix this particular system or whatever, that stuff helped them. And and being expert in the game is a path if you pursue that towards getting in touch, building your network, knowing some game developers, and potentially getting opportunities other people don't. The last thing I want to call out as, hey, here's a way to break into the games industry this is very risky, not recommended perhaps, but it's a way, is to start your own game company. Some people have gotten into the games industry doing this. I will say this is a very low odds play. I know a lot of us, when we're kids, we think we have this great idea for the most awesome game ever in our heads, and that like if we could just start the game company and build it, then it would be the best thing. You're, everybody's wrong, pretty much. But it's a, it's a path, it's just recognize the risk. Yeah, and if you're gonna do that, don't think about what you think is fun yeah. or what you think is cool. Think about what is valuable to players. And I really think as you are studying games and playing games, as Ben said, as a taking that on is almost like a discipline. What you're effectively doing is you're constantly asking yourself the question, what is valuable and what is important to players? And you're starting to view the world through that context. And you're going to have your own biases as a player yourself. But if you can start to understand that deeply, what is valuable to players, you are now building a relevant skill. Think about it in terms of what value you're giving yes, and who you can serve. It really is service. Um, and I think keeping yourself in that mindset is going to be another competitive edge for you. I think it is very wrongheaded to approach it as if you're stacking up some pile of accolades and that eventually someone will have to take you seriously because you've stacked your accolades high enough. That is just simply not the way the world actually works. And in a very forward-thinking, highly innovative, high-risk space like game development, that stuff goes even less far. Yes. So the last section, real quick, that I want to talk about, I'm going to give you some resume advice and then uh, just a couple of, of things to keep in mind. So first for resume advice, as we've said, this isn't the biggest deal. We joked about it at the beginning, but it does matter. Talk about outcomes, not just what the role was. Mm. I never liked it when I got a resume as a hiring manager. And, you know, there's different hiring managers out there, but I never liked it. Oh, drives me nuts. Managed six people, coordinated three projects. It's like, cool, were the projects worse off after you left than when you came in? If they were, yeah. I don't care if you managed 20 projects. Tell me, like you always say, Ben, tell me how you made the world better. Yes. Because if you, if you were there, something was different because you were there. Talk about that difference. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Um, especially for you out there that are going for production roles or leadership roles, this is so much more important for you because you work through others. So you should be able to say that there was a time I showed up, things were at 70%, and when I left, they were at 80%, and this is what that means. I remember talking with, I interviewed someone who had, was supposedly in charge of 400 people. And after talking to him, I realized he didn't lead them at all. He just consolidated a bunch of reports. And, and he called that leadership. And I was, I did not hire him. I guess I'll put it that way. 
show me how you've led if you're going into a leadership role. If you're an engineer, show me how you've made the technology better, how you've solved problems with technology. How you've added value. Again, there's a consistent theme there. How did you add value? So second thing, there are two systems that read resumes, machines and people. Machines only look for keywords. They don't care, care where they are. People care about being interested in you. So a resume is about creating connection. Have the keywords on there. You know, honestly, I think sometimes like the skills section, you just put it at the bottom of the page of the resume or whatever and have it like all the like, ah, Excel, Jira, blah, blah, whatever words you think that company might be looking for, however right or wrong that might be. So that way the machine will pick it up. Don't lie, obviously. Yeah, don't lie. Make sure that no, whatever you put on there is something you can actually do because that one will piss off recruiters and hiring managers really quick yes. when we find it. Yeah. Put the ones that are relevant to you and then make sure your resume has the right things in the right places. If all the interesting stuff about you is in a bullet point under your second job, I never get there. Think about how people look at resumes. Ask people how they look at resumes. What do they see first? Draw their eye to think something that's going to make them want to read more and want to get on a phone call with you. Yeah, one of the things Ben often mentions, and I think that this is very true when giving resume advice, is like imagine that 100% of the people are looking at your resume with your name and title on the top. And then imagine you're just leaking people. Like people are just getting, losing interest and in going on to something else. By the time you get down to your second job, which is like what, 60% or 70% down the page, 70% of the people are gone or 80% of the people are gone. Right. So you better catch them in that first block or two. Like yes. that's what your goal is, is to, to just really draw attention. And I would say, ask friends, hey, when you look at my resume, where do your eyes go first? What do you see? As a hiring manager, one of the things I often did, I read like the top line, I read maybe a little bit of a job description, maybe a bullet, and then I almost always skipped to the bottom to see if there was anything interesting about this person. And this is the third tip. Remember you are trying to connect with somebody, you are trying to create emotional connection with them through a resume. And resumes are formal bragging. So like take all the advantages you can without being deceptive in this, attempt to get them interested in you. You want them to want to call you and find out more about you. Think about your resume through that lens. You're trying to establish interest. You're trying to establish emotional connection. If you don't have any interesting stuff, it doesn't matter how good it all is. I might just be bored. And so keep that in mind. Okay, so there's that's resume advice. Last couple of things. Get used to rejection. This is the reality of going for a job in any industry to some extent. Yeah. And I would even say get used to the feeling of rejection. I view this as a lot like dating. There are innumerable circumstances that could lead to you not getting a call back or lead to somebody not reading your resume. And that could be 80% you. It could be 10% you. Like it could be that the recruiter was distracted that day. Like whatever. <laughs> like you can't walk away and internalize that as like I'm less than or I'm not good or I'm not good enough. You just have to get back up on that horse and keep trying and do not stop trying. Become relentless. Become a learner. Learn from each time, but also become relentless. Like yeah. I, I see so many students and younger people and people new to the industry, they get they bounce off a couple applications and they just go into depression. And while I can certainly empathize with that and relate to that, it's not serving you. And one of the main reasons it's not serving you is because it doesn't mean you're bad. That doesn't mean anything about you. You you don't have enough data to make that determination that you're crap. So stop doing that and just get back out there and try. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say, 
don't only focus on the big AAA names. They have the most supply. The big AAA names, they can snipe people from the smaller, uh, still successful game studios, much less anybody out there in the wild. So overall, just a quick summary. We started off, we talked about the misconceptions. We did some real talk about what the industry is like. Then we dove into what you might actually encounter, things like collaboration, complex problem solving, what it means to actually do that. Then we talked about ways you can make yourself more attractive to games companies, things like modding, being part of communities, becoming an expert in playing, developing skills that are relevant in the games industry, even outside of the industry. Finally, we talked about resume tips and some principles to follow as you're on that journey into games. So getting into games is a mixture of preparing yourself and being in the right place at the right time. There is no magic formula that will always work but you can increase your odds and keep trying. To get into games, you need to focus on a few key areas. Here's some examples. One, build something. Each unit of builder value is worth 10 units of conventional education or traditional resume value. Join a mod team, build a Roblox game mode, make custom maps for your favorite game, whatever it is, build something. Figure out what that's like. Second, involve yourself in key communities and participate and engage with people who share your passions. Your network is going to be a key part of your ability to break into games. Leverage them and build it up. Number three, don't put your life on hold while you're trying to get into games. Get into a similar job or industry where you can. That'll allow you to build up relevant skills. Don't bet the farm on the fact that you're going to get into a games industry job in six months. You may not. Fourth, we didn't talk about this a ton, but I hope it came through as something kind of implied throughout. Study games, play games, take them seriously. This is a job, it's a job. We take our jobs seriously. Try the games that aren't your style. If you want this to be your career, games should be something you are well-versed in. We hope this was helpful for you. Please take a moment to give us a review. These reviews are worth their weight in gold for us and we're working really hard to add value for you all. So if you enjoyed this, please go right now and leave us a review on Spotify or Apple or whatever podcast platform you use. Thank you so much.